1: Technology, intelligence, data. Today we live in a world that's more connected and more transformative than ever before. Our devices are helping us complete tasks at a faster pace and with more precision than we could have ever imagined just a few years ago. But as our lives in the physical and digital worlds become more intertwined, how can we be sure that the algorithms are always on our side? And how can we safeguard technology to ensure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands? In this series, we'll be meeting the experts, the technologists, entrepreneurs and activists to ask them some of those important questions and to champion the people using tech as a force for good for all. This is Our Lives Plus Tech, a brand new podcast from Nominet Trust, the UK's leading investor of social tech and the people behind NT100, a global campaign that celebrates the people and organisations who are using tech to change the world for the better. I'm Ada Paris, and in today's podcast...
0: The kids and I jumped into the water and swam straight outwards, and I was absolutely convinced I was going to die, which really sucked. There's no good way of putting it. That was kind of the moment that... I would say somehow shifted my focus because no one should have to experience that. And uh, that's been my work ever since, trying to make sure that no one really has to stare down the barrel of the gun of a terrorist.
1: Coming up, peace activist Bjorn Ehler will be sharing his life-changing experiences that led him to fight against radicalization. He explains how understanding algorithms and echo chambers could be a vital part of the solution. But first in the studio, I want to welcome our guest who joins us to talk about big data. She's executive director of DataKind UK, a charity sharing a vision of using data in the service of humanity. A warm welcome to Emma Prest. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So Emma, we're going to be talking about the good, the bad, the ugly of big data, especially what's happening today and looking at what it means and how it's used and what does a future look like? But first, I suppose why don't you tell us what is Datakind's mission?
2: So we are an international nonprofit, and we believe that those same data science algorithms and those same kind of AI tools and techniques that companies such as Netflix use to predict the kinds of movies you want to see, we can use to help us create a better world and create the kind of world we want to see. So we bring together teams of pro bono data scientists to partner with nonprofits, with charities and social enterprises and, and government to build data science solutions to help those organisations have a greater impact and create social change.
1: Okay, that's great, because that's really aligned with the Nominate Trust's own mission, you know, really looking at how do you put the human back into technology, and what that means for the future. Um, so what is big data and why should we care?
2: So big data does what it says in the tin. It's a term that you know, began in probably the early 2000s in the tech industry. And it's very simply referring to huge volumes of data that are being generated at an incredibly fast speed and interestingly take quite a wide variety of forms. So it's no longer just kind of numbers, numbers and quantitative data, it can be images or sound or pictures or so much more than that. And the point really is that it's too big to be processed in traditional kind of databases and um, using analytical techniques so that's where the I'd say like the data industry has really taken off because it had to deal with these huge volumes of data although I have my own preferred definition of big data which is which is what (laughs) just that it's more data than you can comfortably handle (laughs) which basically means we're all dealing with big data in our day jobs Um, and then why should we care so I think on on a personal level your data is probably in big data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, big data refers to the posts you put on Facebook, but it's also your medical record and the 60 million records that the NHS sits on, and it's also your bank transactions and all the the data finance companies hold. And I, I think you should care because you should know what data you're sharing, who they then share it with, what they're using it for. And I think up to this point, we have been slightly blindly handing over our data and we haven't been thinking critically about this. So I I think we should care on that level. I also think there's... Well, I said two more levels, actually, now that I think about it. One, (laughs) um, there is the point of governments using your data uh, and what they're using it for, and I would say... Up until fairly recently, my view as government was too incompetent to really be combining all of our data sets and doing anything with it. But I think that's changing. I think they really, really are now. And, you know, what data is the Home Office pulling together? And what could they be using it for? You know, if there are people in this country who they don't like, um, that gets quite scary. And then there's also just, like, in-your-day jobs in your company or, or charity or whatever you work with, how are you guys using data? And this is less big data, I think it's just any kind of data. And that's much more around understanding the opportunities of how it can help you and make your company more effective and also the responsibilities that come with that. So I think there's lots of reasons why we should care about data in general.
1: Let's talk a bit about big data in practice today. How is it being collected and how is it being used? I mean, you touched on that briefly, but I'd like you to go more into detail about that.
2: I mean, most of us are interacting with a variety of digital devices throughout the day. And every time you click a button, you are creating big data. You are hitting a like button, you're following a link, you're looking at a particular story or article, and someone is collecting that data and using it for analysis and probably using it to try and sell you something or market something to you. But it could also be that when you go to the GP surgery, but I think when we think of big data just in terms of Facebook, Google, big tech companies. It's being created by your smartphone and by your laptop.
1: But some of that data can also be used for good. So as you alluded to, you know, in terms of healthcare and helping you, you know, with GPs and all sorts of stuff, the data can be used as a force for good as well.
2: Yeah, there is a huge opportunity for that, which is why DataKind exists, because basically our founder, Jake Porway saw how all his data science mates were using data to make money for companies and basically thought we were missing a trick as society and that we should be using data um, and helping non-profits to use data because if you think that charities and non-profits are often, and government, are at the forefront of helping those who are most vulnerable in society and that basically they are missing out of all the advances in technology that other the big companies are making most of.
1: And could you give me a few examples of how DataKind are using that data at this yeah. moment?
2: Totally. I love talking about that. So where to start? So we've been doing quite a lot with satellite imagery recently. Uh, One example is that UNHCR, who are the refugee agency for the UN, did a project with Datakind in the States. In the space of two days, actually, our volunteers built a prototype using satellite imagery where they could spot how many tents were in a refugee camp and use that to estimate the size of the population so that UNHCR could better allocate resources. Another example is we've been doing a project using satellite imagery to spot wheat rust, which is a particular disease that kills wheat, and it's rife in Ethiopia, and it's killing off a lot of the crops. And the idea is if you can use satellite imagery to spot when it's starting and you have weather data where you know you know which way the winds are blowing, you can use it as an early warning system to help farmers fight against it. There's all kinds of fun things you can do with text messaging and text message data. So we worked with a social enterprise who's based in London called WeFarm, I actually think they're on the NT 100 yes. a few years ago yeah sounds
1: familiar <laughs> yes
2: uh, and they have a network of peer to peer farmers in East Africa and other places so they had collected something like 600,000 text messages and came to us and, and the general question what are they talking about what is it that these farmers are asking for help with the answer was chickens interestingly um <laughs> but there's you know a lot that you can be doing uh, and, and it says maybe a slightly more serious example is that crisis text line in the states are a um text messaging service where teenagers can chat to counselors yeah um so a lot of conversations about suicide and they were looking for like what are the trigger words so what words are teenagers mentioning before you know There are bad outcomes, and it was Tylenol, which is the American version of paracetamol, I suppose. So there's there's all kinds of interesting things you can do with natural language processing and text analysis. And then there's a lot you can do with open data and and other sources of data. So we did a project with Centrepoint, who are a youth homelessness charity, who had put in freedom of information request every local authority in England, Scotland, and Wales. Obviously, only some responded, but it was asking how many young people are facing homelessness in your local authority. And based on the data we had from some local authorities, we could estimate out what it was for other local authorities with similar characteristics. It turned out that the problem was eight times worse than official government statistics said. So that, that was bad.
1: So you've talked a lot about the good side of data, harnessing data and using data. So what's the flip side?
2: So I think that there are huge problems with things like algorithmic bias... There's other, I think, more fundamental problems around just who's collecting the data and what are they doing with it and where's it being stored and all that kind of thing. Data reflects people and human beings. And we live in an unequal society that, you know, has fairly systemic problems. And those problems are reflected in the data. And so if you're building models that are based on past data, those models adopt those exact same problems, Yeah, and that's a real issue.
1: And I know that we will be featuring that in a subsequent podcast, but also I'd like to think about how is data used in terms of politics and democracy?
2: So if you think that a lot of the basis of data science is selling you more stuff, and so under- advertising. Yes, it's basically advertising. Yep. Understanding more about you so they can predict what you're most likely to buy or to read or whatever, which, you know, it can be innocuous because they're trying to sell you a new water bottle. But then obviously, as as we've seen with Cambridge Analytica, it can start getting a bit creepy when they start showing you certain kinds of political adverts.
1: So you mentioned Cambridge Analytica. For our listeners, could you explain who they are and a little bit around
2: that? Yeah, they're a, a British company based out of Cambridge. And they worked on the Brexit campaign, and then they worked on Trump's campaign, and they claim to have a a new way of kind of profiling people. I think it's psychometric. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that they can pinpoint what your political leanings are.
1: Based on the data that they've scraped? Yes. Wow. Wow. (laughs)
2: That's quite Uh, scary Yeah, it's a whole new kind of, you know, basically direct marketing A whole new way of thinking about selling you something But they're trying to sell you a certain message Based on what they think, you you know, most likely to like And so people say that in Trump's campaign Certain voters got certain kinds of messages And we weren't all seeing the same agenda and the same, you know whatever he was promising people we were all saying a slightly warped version of that
1: so what you're saying is a lot of the information that we are being fed is getting muddled and actually that leads us really well into the story i'd like to focus on next
3: say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: We've been discussing the dangers of data from the mild annoyance of online marketing with pop-ups and trying to persuade us to buy stuff to actually the more shady side of data which is trying to manipulate our political views. So over the next few minutes, we'll be hearing from peace activist Bjorn Ehler, who believes this modelling of information can cause massive real-world problems. Much of his work centres around echo chambers and the way in which data is used.
0: Uh, So first of all, I'm Bjorn. I'm working in counter extremism through technology and storytelling, essentially, trying to figure out how narratives and how the information we give out about ourselves really fits into a larger picture of people being radicalised.
1: So how did Bjorn first get interested in issues of radicalisation, data and tech? Well, it starts back in 2011 on a camping trip in his home country, Norway.
0: Every year, the, the Labour Union party has this summer camp in the Norwegian countryside on Ute Island. It's kind of a brilliant place in many ways. It brings together people from all over the country. It's kind of fairly low-key. Like People are living in tents, and it's not in fancy, but it's a good way for people to get out of the cities and hang out in the countryside. Like, even though it's a political party that arranges the summer camp, the most important event going on there is not, like, the prime minister speaking. It's the football matches that are going on, right? Or, you know, the dancing in the evenings and the flirting with girls and, you know, all of those things that, you know, define summer for you, right? Uh, And so on Thursday, the 21st of July, I got sick with my job and I decided to take the Friday off and go out for the weekend, to this island um, and to take part in the summer camp. Went out to the island and had tons of fun uh, the evening of the 21st, catching up with friends I hadn't seen for a year, and then woke up pretty late the morning after, uh, went to a couple of political meetings, and then during the last one of those political meetings we heard that there had been a bomb blast in Oslo. And uh, at that point, Anders Behring Breivik had parked a car loaded with a massive bomb he had built himself in front of the government headquarters in Oslo and blown the place to pieces. And I remember we pulled up pictures on our phones to, like, check out what was going on. It was pretty surreal to see the city I grew up in in an instant kind of change from being this safe little city where nothing ever happens to a place that was looked kind of more like downtown Manhattan on 9-11 or something like that than than my home. And so reconciling that, with, that was pretty kind of intense in itself. A few hours later, it turned out that Anders Bering Breivik had found his way to the island where the summer camp was taking place. And I realized that... He was shooting people um, and ran into the woods where I picked up a kid and uh, hid with that kid for a good hour or so. Every few seconds there were gunshots while we were hiding and then after a while the gunshots came closer to where we were and we decided to run with this group of people. Came running through the woods and we joined them and in that crowd was another young kid so I picked up the two kids and ran along the track that goes through the woods and somehow we ended up on the southern tip of the island where after a while Breivik, dressed as a police officer, found us and told us that he was from the police and that we were safe and then straight after that lifted his gun and started shooting at our group and um, the kids and I jumped into the water and swam straight outwards and uh, I remember standing up and looking back towards the island and seeing Breivik take aim at me and I was absolutely convinced I was going to die Um, which really sucked there's no good way of putting it I mean that was kind of the moment that I would say somehow shifted my focus because no one should have to experience that and uh, that's been my work ever since trying to make sure that no one really has to stare down the barrel of the gun of a terrorist
1: To understand how this terrible event might have happened Bjorn looked at aspects of modern life that may have contributed to Breivik's radicalization.
0: Technology is, is playing an increasingly important role in everyone's lives really, but right now one of the things that i'm seeing happening is that it's leading to a breakdown of communication in some sort of way we are being siloed into each or little world through our our facebook feeds and our twitter feeds and and so forth like we don't have to interact with people anymore in the same way and so we can be extremely selective but then facebook understands what you like because you click a like button or you comment or you share and all of that goes into filtering down and narrowing down what information you get a hold of and what debates you get to participate in. And so we essentially have segmentation and segregation uh, that's happening as a result of that. So what is the true issue with echo chambers and how can they lead to radicalization? echo chambers is more of a problem than than ever before and so like one of the early theories within anti-extremism work is uh, what's called the pressure cooker theory which is basically that within an echo chamber an idea just bounces around but people get like increasingly engaged by that idea and then someone or the pressure cooker kind of explodes and someone takes action and that's how terrorism happens and so the theory when it came to Breivik, Breivik lived in his World of Warcraft world he lived on Stormfront and he lived on Nordfront and a number of other kind of far-right websites so he built his own little kind of bubble through that even before social media was amplifying that and so Breivik Kind of existed within a space where he pretty much only spoke to other people and only read things by other people who confirmed his worldview. And he got his worldview confirmed to an extent where he really in his guts believed that he was at risk of being exterminated. That he and the people he identified with were at risk of, of no longer existing in a generation or so. He thinks that, you know, Muslims are coming to take over the world. They're coming to take over Europe. They're coming to take over Norway. His tribe as a white man is under threat. And he's being told that by everyone around him in some respect. And that really led to him taking action and wanting to fight back against that. And that's all kind of a result of this tiny little world view that, that he had in which diversity of opinion, diversity of ideas was not happening. Bjorn knew that he
1: wanted to work towards a world where diversity of opinion could prevent violent extremism. And from there, he took his first steps in his mission to make that a reality.
0: Trying to figure out like the ways in which I'm not like Breivik was a, a good starting point, but at the same time... Also figuring out the ways in which I am like Breivik. Like, I am a human being, Breivik is a human being. We grew up in Oslo under fairly similar circumstances. So it became important to me to try to figure out what in our community, what in Oslo, what in kind of Norway is it that made it possible to become Breivik? And what made him so different for me? And that's where my research on extremism really started. In 2012, I joined a group called Against Violent Extremism, which was founded by Google Ideas, which now is called Jigsaw. And it brought together former violent extremists and survivors of extremism to have a conversation about how do we stand up against violent extremism, really. And so through that, I started meeting a whole bunch of former extremists. And according to some at this point, I'm probably the person in the world who's met the most former extremists. I started having conversations with these extremists about how they came to become extremists and trying to understand, like, what can we do to prevent people from becoming extremists.
1: Bjorn had always had a strong interest in tech, having studied theatre, performance design and technology in his university years in Liverpool. Working with tech became a strong focus of his career. So naturally, Bjorn looked at how he could implement his knowledge of tech to fight back against these echo chambers and pressure cookers, as he had described...
0: I think from kind of a technological point of view, the algorithms we need, the machine learning, the artificial intelligence, the big data, it's it's there. And right now it's being used to narrow down your worldview uh, because they are learning about you. They are learning what you like. They are learning what you're likely to click on and they're serving you more of that. And I think if we could use the same tools essentially to instead... Feed people things that are slightly at edge with their worldview, things that are radically different from their worldview, to widen people's horizons of, of what exists out there, then we would have a much healthier community in the long run. So, when it comes to the practical
1: tech solutions, Bjorn
0: has a few ideas that he's working on. Kind of curious right now to try to develop a chatbot that contacts people who are at risk of radicalization and has a conversation with them and trying to scale and and automate that somehow but then once you have identified someone who potentially is going down a route becoming a violent extremist the worst thing you can do is really saying hey you're a violent extremist let's stop that Um, instead you have to engage with them and have a conversation with them So I'm involved in several things that are are looking at these issues and and how to deal with these issues. One of them is the Antanas Foundation, through which we're trying to build a framework for mapping out conversations around ideologies, really, through knowledge graphs. And so we're trying to piece together different pieces of information surrounding pieces of ideology the first app we're building there is a living quran where we take each of the quranic verses and then we map out the different interpretations and different scholarships surrounding each of the verses in the quran and i think that's a pretty cool way of of creating kind of a wider spectrum of understanding or understanding that there is diversity in how different pieces of information are interpreted and there has been a long history of how different pieces of information in something like the Quran has been interpreted. We're also looking at various other things through Khalifa-Illar Institute, which is kind of my main gig, where we are looking at how we can essentially figure out on a neighborhood basis, uh, geographically, what forms of extremism are likely to take root in various neighborhoods within a city in various ways, data and and analysis to try to really figure out the guts of how we challenge each other in healthy ways and widen our horizons and widen our worldviews in order to challenge violent extremism.
1: I mean, that's a real example of sometimes we have these moments in life that completely change the path of our own direction and, you know, looking at how technology can be a facilitator or a hinderer of those certain situations. I mean, that's such a powerful story. So, Emma, kind of, what are your thoughts on what he shared?
2: Yeah, I think he's giving us quite an extreme example of what we all experience every day and I don't think there's... Any reason we need to be experiencing this? No. I mean, a lot of these algorithms, basically, that have been designed to to feed us this content that stays within our echo chamber and within what we like, can be designed differently. Facebook could choose to create an algorithm that showed us a diversity of news and a diversity of political opinion, but they don't. But I think they could be designed in a way that had, you know, users involved and users saying, actually, this is what I want to read or, you know, just I think much more control by users of these platforms over what information they want to receive is really important. (laughs) But... I don't think we're seeing really any serious change from any of these big platforms, which is disheartening. If you think that Facebook recently came out saying that they were going to, I don't know, what did Zuckerberg say? He were going to focus less on news and information and much more on you having a nice time talking to your friends and family and he wants you to leave with a positive experience of the platform or some nonsense. I think that's almost him kind of ignoring the problem. I was going to say, isn't that
1: potentially creating more of an echo chamber because then you're only speaking to the people that you know and not getting a world view?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the. But isn't that just as dangerous then?
1: Or potentially?
2: I really don't know what they're trying to get at with that, to be okay. totally honest with you. I think they're kind of like, oh, the problem is news and information. So, we'll so just- let's just block it out. Yes, yeah, we're just going to do less news and information, <laughs> which I don't think is the answer. Pretend it uh, doesn't to the exist. Problem. Yeah. But I think as consumers, we're not uniting and using our power basically. Okay. Um, which is quite an interesting, I, I think, traditionally, as consumers, we've been good at, you know, pushing back when we think a product's broken, and should be recalled. I mean, there, there are laws and regulations around this kind of thing. And there simply isn't in, in this in this space at all. And I think people also they're getting a, a free product in exchange for basically their data. I think the, the relationship there is, is much murkier.
1: So whose responsibility do you think it should be to try and change some of the behaviours and I know that's a big question.
2: Yeah I think the companies need to take a long hard look at themselves Okay, um, and I think they need to engage these users around what users actually want. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be regulating this stuff. I think things like GDPR are a great step. It doesn't come until May. So
1: for our listeners who don't know what GDPR is could you just give us a little insight into that?
2: Yeah, it's the new data protection regulation that's come out from the EU that is actually really positive in terms of giving people more rights over their data and making sure that companies are only collecting data that they need and then they're not storing excessive data and it's generally seen as a very sensible and positive move. Okay. But it doesn't apply to the states. And you could argue that most you know, most of these companies we're talking about are American technology companies and they are companies that are based out of the West Coast and I would argue that in terms of they are producing products that are being consumed across the world and across so many different cultures and yet the people making the decisions probably have the least diversity (laughs) and there's a real problem here in that to understand what this means, what echo chambers mean in extreme situations like we've just heard. You need to have lots of different people with lots of different experiences talking about it within a company and I don't think that's happening.
1: So, how are data kinds trying to get themselves involved in that and try and change some of that behavior
2: yeah, so we fairly recently actually last end of last year, we kind of co created within our community a set of ethical principles okay that we all abide by when working on data projects to try and help us. Make decisions when we're deciding what technologies to use. And are those available for other people to see? We're in our third draft and they're a Google Doc, but you can have them. Great. Um, (laughs) They're on the internet. (laughs) Um, It was a kind of a realisation of there's lots of guidance and there's actually quite a lot coming out of academia on data and ethics. But what does this mean for us, for our community in our particular use case? There's no one to copy. Let's just. Do this ourselves. So we put them together. It, you know, it's been a really fantastic process. But also, I think sneakily, the idea is that all of our data scientists uh, have jobs, full time day jobs in the private sector, and we're trying to get them to kind of take those principles back to the office. Okay. Because in their companies, they don't have anything like this. And when I've had frank conversations with them they say that actually these conversations aren't really happening. There aren't ethical discussions. There aren't, you know, if you think there are ethical review boards in academia when you're designing a research project, there's no such thing in the private sector um, in tech companies.
1: And so how can some of our listeners get involved in kind of data kind? Is that a possibility? How can they help support you in what you're trying to do?
2: Uh, yeah, so totally. So if you have data skills, you can volunteer for us or if you want to project manage a data project or you want to help us with comms, You know, we are a volunteer-run community. We have about 50 volunteers who meet on a monthly basis to run uh, the organisation. And then in any year, we have something like 400 to 500 volunteers we work with. So there's a lot of opportunities for that kind of thing. Um, and I should say that data kind is international. So there's other chapters all around the world.
1: So on an individual level how can we start to broaden our horizons to change some of our behaviours that's probably helping to perpetuate some of these bad habits?
2: There's a drastic answer, which is to use less social media, um, but I don't know how <laughs> realistic that is for some people. But I do think there is a, an increasing distrust of these companies, actually, and there's been, you know, there's these ideas that people are trying to use have less screen time, and I think we are actually pushing back because... These platforms have been built in such an addictive way. And it... Like I think we inherently know it's unhealthy, but we can't quite put our but finger we're addicted on it. To the the
1: behaviour. Yeah, and it, we're yeah. just
2: addicted to like the really quick buzz of someone liking something, and and that's a problem. So I've heard lots of different ways of how people are tackling this. I don't know. I necessarily recommend any of these, such but... as, <laughs> well, apparently I don't know if this still exists, There was some app that you could download that only gave you a certain amount of time yes, on social I've media. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, yeah, or I've heard someone has a timer on their router at home, so they just cut off internet for him and his kids. If Oh wow! <laughs> spent too much time on it. So I think there's some quite ex- extreme examples there. But also, it's interesting. There's been stories recently of a couple of kind of Facebook designers who've since left Facebook, yes. saying that they don't let their children on screens. Are you nuts? You know, and that's the kind of I think for a lot of us, we're like, oh, you designed this stuff, and you don't let your own children use it. That should be a red flag. Yeah,
1: there was an article I read this morning about Bill Gates doing the same with his children. You know, they're not allowed on screen. Isn't there something that we should be taking from that?
2: Yeah, no, totally. And I think it's a bit, I haven't quite worked out what the analogy is, but it's something about sugar. So I think that they've designed something that's really addictive and and you want more and more of it. And it's almost, this may not make any sense, but I think it's like if you're ordering a delivery from a supermarket and your groceries arrive and they sometimes substitute things. And they know from your shopping orders that you have a sweet tooth. And they just keep substituting in chocolate. And you end up with shopping orders where like half your vegetables are being substituted for green and blacks. And <laughs> you're like, this is. It's, it's hard. so wrong, but. It's so wrong, but it's so hard. I think those base desires. And I yes. almost think these platforms have been designed to tug on our base desires and all those nonsense, you know, the, the clickbait and the fake news. And it's something that we. In fact, we need the opposite. We need to like help uh, and like so, like intentional support so that we can we can set certain you know like preferences and we can design. Actually, the, the system is not designed for us. I think the system is just designed to, you know to feed us sugar, so we're like mentally. I don't know, rotting and obese or something. But Um. I
1: I suppose I do have some hope because I'm seeing some of these articles that you're mentioning coming through that are making suggestions about how people change their behaviours. So I know people who've removed social media from their mobiles and actually only go on their computers and maybe that's another way of doing things.
2: Yeah, actually I do have one really good trick which is that you turn your phone onto just black and white. So it's actually nowhere near as fun to look at and so apparently it's been proven that you use it much less.
1: Ah, <laughs> so I've taken off my notifications, and I think I read that Tim Ferriss he leaves his phone on flight mode for about eighty percent of the time.
2: That's smart. I like that. Yeah? yeah. So
1: another tip, maybe. And so then going back to your point about the ethics of all of this, you know, could you give me any examples of people that you've worked with at DataKind who are getting it right?
2: Oh, uh, so not really. Um, so. A mm, couple of couple of points here. I mean, I know Google DeepMind has set up some ethics thing team board. I don't know what it is like, but I have no idea what it's doing if it has any teeth. Okay. I mean, there's, I think, really early kind of nods within companies that this stuff matters. OK. But I don't... That's know a starting point. ...how much it's uh, kind of up and running. OK. There are a couple of really interesting examples, though, of, I would say, not within companies, but of bodies that are being started. So I know that there's something called Data and Society in New York, and they do brilliant work, and it's, it's a lot of research into this, and they want to get... But it's supposed to be kind of non-academic, so they're getting practitioners who've been working in the social good space and in the data space to come and spend, like, a year with them, and they reflect and share stories. And that's absolutely brilliant, and I'd love to see something similar in the uk i know that the nuffield foundation has just is starting a convention on data ethics um, which again is kind of bringing people together just to even like start thinking about this and actually be providing some practical guidance there's been a load of talk about ethics the past year and a half we've started to see a couple of initiatives popping up but we have not i mean i also think like ethics isn't a tick box exercise ethics is like is, is discussions you've got to get diverse perspectives around a table and really like hash it out and that like you know requires time and effort and energy which is why companies don't really want to do it the other thing i totally need to plug is there's five years ago there was something set up called the responsible data forum and it's for all the international ngos working and struggling with data and it is exactly that so it's a collaborative space which now has hundreds of people on it who just you know email in their problems and have a chat i think we need more of that kind of forum actually for dealing with this stuff
1: Sounds great. So, we are now coming to the close of the show. And I'd like to finish on a positive note with a question for you. What is the exciting future of big data? What are the potentials do you see?
2: So, I don't know. I think so that the potential, and this might sound so practical, is that I think what we've been doing so far in this space of, I'm going to say, particularly kind of big data for social good space. Has been lots of testing and lots mm-hmm. of prototyping showing what's possible, but I would argue not many of those solutions are being used on a daily basis and scaled. and so I think there's been lots of exploration Why and so do you think that is? Well, just because it's you need kind of you know quite uh, significant in-house data teams and resources okay. To run these things, and a lot of the you know nonprofits are building up those teams. So it's still early days. So I, th- I think it gets exciting when we start seeing all of these things, all of these data science solutions being used and being shared across organisations tackling similar problems. I think that's like what gets me really excited, and is what Datakind aims to do over the next kind of three to five years. Quite immediately, that's what our our aim is.
1: Okay, and what about on an individual level?
2: So in an individual level. I want people to start giving a damn about what their data is being used for and pushing back and I think I've heard that which, the Consumer Association, is kind of starting, I think, something around data. I mean, I, I think the idea is how do you even push back? Like, who do you phone up and complain to? Yeah. Like, who's going to organise us to, to complain? And so I do think we need some of these kind of consumer bodies to step up and, and do that and help us do that. Because what are we what are we complaining about to whom? We all have a sense that it's icky, but we
1: don't know what to do. And uh, what I'm seeing is, is a lot of those conversations are actually happening on Facebook. Yeah. You know, on social media platforms, which are part of the problem.
2: Yeah which is also so annoying because you can just see how good they are at bringing people together. Yes. <laughs> so they're not going anywhere. Any how do we turn soon. that into
1: something practical that's actually going to make a big difference?
2: Yeah, and I, I think the answer is money. We have to affect the bottom line. It has to be something that's going to affect Facebook and Twitter financially, and I'm not sure what that is.
1: So, Emma, that's almost it for this podcast. Where can listeners find out more about Datakind and get involved?
2: you can go onto our website datakind.org or you can obviously find us on Twitter at Datakind or at Datakind UK or you can come and check us out locally. We have meet-up groups all around the world.
1: Thank you so much, Emma. Um, It's been fascinating speaking to you. Thank you so much for
2: having me. So
1: that's it for this episode of Our Lives Plus Tech. I want to say a huge thanks again to Emma Prest and also to Bjorn Ehler for sharing his amazing story. He's certainly a man doing some incredible things. So you can follow him on Twitter at bjornih or head to bjornih.co.uk. And to explore other global projects transforming lives with tech, like those featured in today's podcast, head to Nominate Trust's website. That's nominatetrust.org.uk. There you'll find more on the NT100 campaign, including our new report, Transforming Lives with Tech, a global conversation, sharing insights from five years of NT100 projects and emerging social tech trends for 2018. We'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. So leave us a review, get in touch on Facebook or via Twitter at Nominate Trust. We'll be back in two weeks time with a show all about artificial intelligence. But until then, From me, Ada Paris, goodbye.